This morning I'll be picking it up in Genesis chapter 4. I'll start reading in verse 17, and then I want to finish up with chapter 5, verse um, 31. I'm going to skip, you know, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a challenge to read the genealogies, but by the time I get through reading it, you're going to appreciate that a pattern is set before us in Genesis chapter 5 to be contrasted with chapter 4, and we're going to draw some spiritual conclusions from that. So let's begin now in Genesis chapter 4, verse 17. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And unto Enoch was born Irad, and Irad begat Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael, and Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech took unto him two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. And Ada bare Jabal, and he was the father of such that dwell in tents, and of such as have cattle. And his brother's name was Jubal, and the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. And Zillah, she also bare Tubalcane, an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, and the sister of Tubalcane was Nehemah. And Lamech said unto his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, ye wives of Lamech, hearken unto my speech, for I have slain a man to my wounding and a young man to my hurt. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech seventy and sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. And to Seth, to him also there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. Chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that God created man, in the likeness of God made he him. Male and female created he them, and blessed them, and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. And Adam lived an hundred and thirty years, and begat a son in his own likeness after his image, and called his name Seth. And the days of Adam after he had begotten Seth were eight hundred years, and he begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Adam lived were nine hundred and thirty years, and he died. And Seth lived an hundred and five years, and begat Enos. And Seth lived after he begat Enos eight hundred and seven years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. And Enos lived 90 years, and begat Canaan. And Enos lived after he begat Canaan 815 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enos were 905 years, and he died. And Canaan lived 70 years, and begat Mahalalil. And Canaan lived after he begat Mahalalil 840 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. And Mahalalil lived 60 and 5 years, and begat Jared. And Mahalalil lived after he begat Jared 830 years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Mahalalil were 890 and 5 years, and he died. And Jared lived a hundred and sixty and two years, and he begat Enoch. And Jared lived after he begat Enoch eight hundred years, and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Jared were nine hundred sixty and two years, and he died. 
And Enoch lived sixty and five years and begat Methusael. And Enoch walked with God after he begat Methusael three hundred years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Enoch were three hundred sixty and five years. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. And Methusael lived an hundred eighty and seven years and begat Lamech. And Methusael lived after he begat Lamech seven hundred eighty and two years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Methuselah were nine hundred sixty and nine years, and he died. And Lamech lived an hundred eighty and two years and begat a son. And he called his name Noah, saying, The same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. And Lamech lived after he begat Noah five hundred ninety and five years and begat sons and daughters. And all the days of Lamech were seven hundred seventy and seven years, and he died. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his people said, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we have your word, that we might look back and remember the things that have been, because you have placed them before us and placed in our heart a desire to read and to learn and to see Christ and to know what lays ahead of us, even eternal glory, through the redemptive process in thy Son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Reading genealogies are, are interesting up, up to a point, um, but what you want to glean from them is something that the Lord has set before us. Clearly, the God has put these genealogies in here for a reason, because there's something that he would want us to learn. Not just superficially, the genealogy which leads to Christ, which is very important, but there are some spiritual truths that the Lord would have us to learn here. And so we're going to talk about those in a few minutes. I wanted to pick it up, our lesson this morning, in verse 17, where it talks about Cain, um, and how he uh, built, he and his wife conceived a child, and then he built a city and named it after the name of his son. Because that's significant, because that helps us to appreciate where the heart of man is, that it's on the temporal things and it's on the things of this earth. So we'll talk about that, we'll talk about the genealogies, and we'll talk um, about patterns that we see. And then in the course of that, I think you'll get an appreciation for why Mary the mother of Jesus, said the things that she said to the angel Gabriel, because you can read that uh, with respect to what Eve's expectation was. So it'll be a good segue for um, next week when we speak about and celebrate the birth of the Lord. So here we have in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 4 that Cain builds a city and names it after his son, clearly wishing to leave um, a remembrance of himself on, on this earth. In 2 Samuel 18, 18, we read about Absalom, who does not have a son, uh, raises up a pillar for himself, obviously, so that there would be some kind of a physical monument indicating that Absalom lived and that uh, people would think about him and remember him, um, which we do because we have the scriptures and we don't remember him in a positive light at all. But again, this is consistent with men to lift themselves up, to make a name for themselves, to leave something on the earth that, that would leave a remembrance of them. So we have, certainly in our time, we have libraries, we have buildings, we have airports, and we have bridges, and we have all sorts of prominent architectural monuments that are named after people, really with the same view in mind, that people will look at that and they will remember um, Washington. Our town is, you know, San Mateo, St. Uh, Matthew. You've got cities all over California that are named after various people. But 
the Lord says that in the grand scheme of things, life is short. People pass, uh, their glory of man passes as though the flower of grass. When the sun is on it, it, it soon fades away, and people forget um, who came before them. People forget these things. So you can build all the monuments you want. They aren't going to last. And even if you have your monument, people aren't going to remember who you are. They re might remember the George Washington Bridge or the city of Washington, but what do you really know about Washington himself? What do you know about the man? What do you know about his nature and his character? Well, unless you're a historian and study it, you're not going to remember anything about him. The Lord says that naked we come into this world and naked we shall depart. And that's what he said in Genesis chapter 3 when he told Adam, Dust thou art, and dust thou shalt return. And Lord knows how many um, pyramids there are uh, full of all sorts of physical treasures, but the men that were buried in them, even though they embalmed them, are essentially dust. There, there's no remembrance of who they actually were and what real things they did, save what you can find uh, written about them. But who knows what is true about those things because people are famous for writing revisionistic history. In Ecclesiastes, we read that there is no remembrance of either the wise man or the fool man. Even though a wise man might deliver a, a, a city against a great army, this Ecclesiastes says you're not going to remember who that individual was. So it's all a waste of energy and a form of self-aggrandizement to name cities after yourself or after your son. Now, in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, and this is just a minor rabbit hole, but I want to bring it up because this country is on, um, on a path that we can appreciate when we read the Scriptures. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9, it says, The thing that hath been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. In other words, history repeats itself. And you've heard lots of people say, you know, those that forget history are condemned to repeat it. The Bible says you are condemned to repeat it, period. Verse 10, is there anything whereof it may be said, see, this is new, it hath been already of old time, which was before us. And in verse 11, the Lord says, there is no remembrance of former things, neither shall there be any remembrance of things that are to come with those that shall come after so God is clearly telling us in his word that we are going to repeat the things that have been because we do not remember those things that have been. So though we have historians and we have history books, people don't learn the lessons that have been set before them. So we see that in our country. Um, if you're a Christian, you can see the path that we're on and the direction we're going. And you can appreciate when you saw those news uh, programs where people were literally ripping down, pulling down statues which help commemorate our history. You can see that how, how a blind man is, but how they will do exactly what Scripture says. We are not going to remember the past. We are going to repeat it because God says you will repeat it. Um, and we certainly do. We are on a path that is leading to destruction as a nation, and as God lifts up one nation, and then you see a pattern of history and how things go, and then it, it, he destroys that nation, he's doing going to do the same thing to this um, country as well. Now, big picture here, eventually God's going to destroy the whole planet. He says in verse 17 of Isaiah 65, he says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. So he's creating a new heaven and a new earth. This earth is not going to be remembered. All the people that are here, nobody's going to remember them. If anybody tells you at a funeral that, you know, some 
predeceased person is up in heaven looking down on this earth. That's just not true. They have no remembrance of these things. It would not be a uh, wonderful state where there are no tears and no sorrow in heaven if we were looking down and watching somebody beat up on our children. That would not be a place of, uh, of glory. We will be beholding our Savior in heaven. So God says, former things shall not be remembered um, anymore. So, um, again, we appreciate that men want to lift themselves up and name cities after themselves. So we're going to repeat the same things that our parents have done, those mistakes. And as a society, as a culture, as a people, uh, globally speaking, it all starts with men not glorifying God, even though God says, through the creation, you know who I am, but because they do not glorify God and they were not thankful, it's going to lead to their destruction, and that's the way it goes. So those that would build earthly cities and name them after their son are clearly earthly-minded. And this we saw with Cain. He was earthly-minded. He offered to God the fruits of the earth, and God said that thorns and thistles, in other words, sin shall come forth so God's not interested in those things. And people that are earthly-minded are to be contrasted with those that are heavenly-minded, um, who don't build permanent dwelling places on earth here. They don't build up kingdoms for themselves. They don't try to build institutions for themselves. But their hearts are heavenly-minded. Their thoughts are heavenly-minded. And of those people, the Lord says in um, Hebrews, that they look for a heavenly city, a heavenly city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. So Cain can build himself a city, which we know in a couple of chapters is going to be wiped off the face of the earth. Or you can set your hearts upon heaven and look for a city that has foundations which cannot be destroyed, cannot be washed away. And the builder of that city is um, God. So now, while Cain builds a city and names it after his son, he names it after his son, God builds a city which is his son. It is his son. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24, the Lord talks about that city. In verse 22, he speaks about the saints, how they have come to a city. And he says, but ye, meaning Christians, are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God. So Christians come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, he gives it a name, and to an innumerable company of angels. So this city that is in heaven, it's actually it's called heavenly Jerusalem, it's the holy city. And he says, so you're coming to a company of innumerable angels. Verse 23, to the general assembly and the church. So it contains all of the Christians, all of the people that are part of the body of Christ, the church of the firstborn, of course, which is Christ, which are written in heaven, and then he's going to define the city as God. And to God, the judge of all, uh, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. So these are all not only the occupants of the city, but it's the city itself. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So this city, the city of the living God, is also Christ. It's God and it's Christ. So it's not to be understood in, a, in the with just physical dimensions and uh, um, made of stones and things that we might appreciate in an anthropomorphical sense in this world, but it's a spiritual city that is Christ himself and is God. And we know that Christ is the head of the church and we, the Christians, are, part, are his body. So... In Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, it speaks of this city coming down from heaven. 
in verse in chapter 21 he says and i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea the sea here represents the people that in chapter 19 were brought before the throne of judgment that has come and gone and i john saw the holy city new jerusalem coming down from god out of heaven so if you continue to read in revelation 21 you'll find more about the um, the description of this heavenly city that God has built for his saints that we shall go to. And again, it's the um, earthly man that builds a city on this earth and really has no hope for that which is up in eternal glory. Now, our deacon read for us this morning, Psalm 48. Psalm 48 speaks of this city of God. In verse 1, it says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in the mountain of His holiness. The mountain of His holiness is Zion. That's also another name um, for the city. Because of its glory, the city takes on the name of the whole uh, mountain. And what we can appreciate when we read these first uh, three verses here is that this is beautiful for situation. It's a beautiful city. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion. On the sides of the north, the city of the great king. God is known in her palaces for a refuge. And so as you read this here in uh, Psalm 48, you, in your mind you have a distinction as though God is separate from the city itself, but we've read in, in Hebrews 12 that God is the city, and God is the palace of the city. God is, the, is, the, is a refuge in the city. If you drop down to verse um, 12, it says, Walk about Zion. So imagine in your head you're in the city, Zion. Walk around the city and take a look at it. Go round about her, tell or count the towers thereof. Think of this city as a city that might um, suffer attack from some external source. So he says, look at the towers that are thereof. Mark ye well her bulwarks, which are, are defensive um, parts of the city, things that would withstand any attack that might come upon it. Consider her palaces that ye may tell it to the generations following. The Lord is setting up for us here. He wants us to walk around the city which is really Christ, and he wants you to consider Christ. So you are in this city, you are in Christ. Imagine what things might assail you or attack you. There is nothing that can assail you or attack you. We know that in John chapter 6, the Lord tells us that there is um, that we are ever safe in Christ, that nothing can take us from Christ. In John 6, 37, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. God takes people and he puts them in the city. And him that cometh to me, will I and knows why is cast out. So when God brings you into the city, Christ will never put you out of the city. You are ever safe in that city. In verse 39, he says that he would lose nothing that is given to him. So nobody can be taken out of the city of God. When God puts you in there, he's certainly not going to put you in there and then take you back out. He puts you in there. You are there for eternity. You are there to stay. In Romans 8, 38, uh, we read verses that you're very familiar with. He says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're in the city of God. Nothing will ever separate you from the city of God. Nothing can ever assail you. Nothing can ever attack you. Nothing can ever hurt you uh, once in the city of God. Now, 
You need to understand that in a spiritual context. If you think you can get in your car and not put your seatbelt on, get in a crash and walk away from it, you're mistaken. You're going to suffer the temporal effects of sin on this world, and you are, in fact, going to die. Um, but you will never spiritually die. You will never be spiritually um, taken from the presence of the Lord, and so you will never suffer separation from him. So we are eternally secure, and we are eternally um, safe in him. With respect to bulwarks and things, the, um, the Lord tells us that in uh, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 1, so we would appreciate that there's a spiritual um, truth to what is taught here. He says in verse 1 of Isaiah 26, And that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. And so the physical characteristics of a city are teaching us about the spiritual reality of our salvation, that it is absolutely um, impregnable. It cannot be assailed or taken from you. He says, Open ye the gates that the righteous nation which keepeth the truth may enter in. In other words, all Christians come in. All of the people that were described in Hebrews chapter 12, those are the occupants of the city. And he says in verse 3, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. So if your faith and trust is in the Lord, you are in perfect peace, because you are perfectly safe in this heavenly Jerusalem, the city with foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So we can appreciate when we set these two at, uh, in juxtaposition with each other, the cities that men build versus the city that God has built. One is eternal, one is safe, and one is the dwelling place of God's people. The other is the dwelling place of men. And as we roll forward in Scripture, we can see what happens to the cities that men built. Cain City is going to be wiped off the face of the earth by a flood. Sodom and Gomorrah and the coast roundabout were all burnt to a cinder by God. And um, Jericho, uh, when the people of God marched around it seven days, fell flat to the ground. All the walls, walls fell flat to the ground, and then God went in there with his people and burnt that city. So, again, contrasting these cities here, we appreciate that one is built by God, the other are built by men. Now, I want to move to the genealogies and have us to appreciate contrasts that we see in there. But I have to give a disclaimer before I go into it. And the disclaimer is this. I want you to appreciate what is not taught here between these two genealogies. What is not taught is there is not a physical line that leads to salvation. There is not a physical line that leads to salvation. God is not a respecter of persons. God saves people out of every nation, kindred, tribe, and tongue. So again, there is not a physical line that leads to salvation. This, what we're reading about, takes place before there were any such thing as a Jew. There were no children of Abraham. There were no children of Judah. This is God just has two people juxtapositioned with each other. Those of Cain and those of Seth are set before us. So again... God is not a respecter of person, black, white, red, yellow, green, rich, poor, bond, free. It's all the same in God's eye. Whoever he saves, he died to save, and he shed his blood to save. Um, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 13, is a clear statement with respect to that truth. 
Speaking of people that are born again, people that are born from above, he says, which were born not of blood, neither of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So he says you're not born of blood, so if your Christians were a parent, uh, if your parents were Christians, does not mean you're going to be a Christian. It wasn't the will of your flesh. There wasn't something in your flesh that desired it, and there was not something in your um, will of man, your intellect, uh, your, your soul that desired the things of God. You're not born by any of those things. You're born exclusively by the work of God. So, again, in John, the Lord says, it is the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profit nothing. And he says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. So again, there's nothing um, in these genealogies that would teach us that it is through the flesh that an individual is saved. It does teach us that there are two types of people on this earth. There are two natures in the regenerated man. And scripture speaks about the regenerated man being a new creature in Christ, yet the old nature remains. And so we can appreciate what the Lord says in um, Romans chapter 9, verse 21. He says, Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump, clay that is, to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Um, so he can. God can make out of the dust of the earth two individuals, one vessel of honor and one vessel of dishonor. God is sovereign over all things. There is a pattern that I talked about in the past that we should appreciate because this is true in everybody's life. If you're a Christian now, you used to be a natural carnal man, but you are now a new creature in Christ and you are a partaker of the divine nature. Um, but um, the old nature remains, so you still struggle with your flesh and your spirit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 46, I've read this before, it says, Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural and afterwards, that which is spiritual. So the natural man comes first. You were born a natural man. Then you were regenerated by God, and the spiritual man in you came second. Just like we see the pattern in Scripture here, Cain, the natural man, was born first. Then Abel, the spiritual man. Ishmael is the natural man. Isaac, the spiritual man. Esau, they're twins with Jacob. Esau is the natural man. Jacob is the spiritual man. And then you have Adam, and then you have Christ. So Adam, the first man, Adam, was a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. So the natural man looks to the earth. He builds cities, even though the ground is cursed. And then the spiritual man looks for the heavenly uh, Jerusalem. So with that in view, I want us to appreciate uh, from the, with respect to these genealogies that both of them originate in Adam. Both originate in Adam and Eve. Both of these people, Seth and Cain, have the same father and they have the same mother. They had the same upbringing, lived under the same set of circumstances. Adam, um, suffering uh, no generational accumulative effects of sin, like we all do. You know, we're a product of many things, including the way we were brought up. Adam didn't suffer any of the baggage that might have come from his parents because God made him. So he doesn't have any of the cumulative effects of sin like we do. Um, and so we can appreciate that, without a doubt, he did not provoke his children to wrath or frustration. 
um, but brought them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is what we're told to do in Ephesians 6, 4, to bring our children up in the nurture and fear of the Lord, and as a father, not to frustrate them or, or bring them to wrath in, that, in the process of teaching them. So, in other words, what I'm trying to say is Adam clearly taught his children the gospel. Abel knew the gospel. He knew that he was a sinner. He understood that the wages of sin was death but the gift of God was eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. He understood that. He understood the substitutionary offering of the first sling of his flock, which the fact that he gave that evinced that he knew and understand the nature of the substitutionary offering. Um, the text confirms that he understood that, and he appreciated the effects of it because it says that the Lord had respect unto Abel, and unto his offering. And we talked about how God views that together, just as when he looks at the offering of his son Christ, he, and we're in Christ, he sees the relationship between the two of them, and he has respect unto us in our offering, which the offering, of course, is Christ on our behalf. Now, because his, animal, his parents sinned, Adam, because they sinned, uh, the Lord slew an animal, and, which would typify Christ, and he made a covering for them, and clothe them with a coat representing the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness, all of which we have talked about in the past. Adam knew it, Eve knew it, and they taught it to their children directly. So Cain, Abel, and Seth all would have had been taught the significance of what took place in the Garden of Eden. Adam would have shared with all of his children the conversations that he had with God. Eve would have done the same thing as any loving mother would have. We can appreciate the things that Eve understood from Genesis 3.15, where God said to Satan, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. I think she understood what that meant, at least in part. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. She understood that. And the reason I say she understood that, because she uh, was evident that she understood that when she said in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 4, quote, I have gotten a man from the Lord. So she's looking for a male seed. I have gotten a man from the Lord. That would have been Cain. And then in verse 25 of Genesis chapter 4, it says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son, and called his name Seth, for God, she said, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. So she's um, appreciative of the fact that she has gotten another seed from the Lord, which is a male. So it's another male seed here that is in view in her mind, thinking back to Genesis 3.15. So this was the expectation of all of God's people that a deliverer would come. And that deliverer was going to be a man. And that man would destroy the devil and the works of the devil when that man bruised his head, as it says in Genesis 3.15. Now, think about what Mary said to the angel in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to pick it up in verse 26. There's a conversation between Gabriel and, and Mary. In verse 26, it says, And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. 
And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying and cast in her mind what manner of salutation this should be. Anybody would um, think it an interesting thing if an angel came to them and, and spoke with them, and I have no doubt that she was um, troubled at his saying. Verse 30, And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, which means Savior. And shall, he shall be great and shall be called the Son, again, male of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. Verse 33, And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So in verse 34, Mary asks a very natural question. Then says Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? Now, Gabriel's answer to her is gracious in light of the fact that 730 years earlier, God had clarified Genesis 3.15. And Isaiah chapter 7, verse uh, 14, God says, Behold... A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. So back in Isaiah, 730 years prior, God had said a virgin is going to conceive. She's not going to have to know a man. She's going to conceive. 110 years after the Isaiah prophecy in Jeremiah 31:22, we read, The Lord hath created a new thing in the earth. A woman shall compass a man. In other words, a woman, her matrix still being closed, she's a virgin, shall completely surround and compass about a man. In other words, it's the same thing with Isaiah. A virgin shall conceive. So Gabriel's gracious answer is, and the angel answered and said unto her, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. So he's telling her that it's God himself who is going to um, fertilize her seed so that she will bear a child, and that child shall be a son. So we can appreciate that while Eve believed the promise of God that a male deliverer would be born of a woman, and that one was so most certainly necessary, um, that she was thinking that it would be through a man, that um, because she knew a man, then she would therefore give birth. So without a doubt, she taught these things to her children. Um, and um, so her understanding was that because she knew a man, she would give forth to the seed that would be the deliverer, because she knew a man. Mary is saying, how this shall be, because I know not a man. So we can see that the expectation of all the women was that it was going to be through um, another male that they would give birth. And so God was saying, no, look back at the prophecies in Scripture. It's not going to be because you have um, had relationships with a man, but rather it's going to be through me that you will give birth. So, irrespective of what Eve understood, we can appreciate that after Seth's son Enos is born, that there's an expectation of God's deliverance because people then began to look to God and to associate themselves with God. 
in verse 26 of Genesis chapter 4, uh, we read that then began men to call on the name of the Lord. And the marginal reading, the translation, is that men began to call themselves by the name of the Lord. In other words, they began to do the same things that the folks did in the book of Acts around chapter 11. You recall that it was up in Antioch that men first called themselves Christians. They are associating themselves with the deliverer, with Christ. And so even though we see a continuity, uh, uh, we, you continue to see in Genesis 4 and 5 a division in the people, one group begins to look to the Lord and begins to call on the name of the Lord. And so the gospel is going out, it's going forth, and it's being appreciated and understood by one group of people, and they are identifying themselves and associating themselves with God. And we do that today. We call ourselves Christians, indicating that we are related to Christ. We have a relationship with Christ. Women do that when they get married. They take on the name of their husband, associating themselves with their husband. Christ is my husband. I have taken his name. I call myself a Christian. That is how I identify uh, myself. So we look back to what Christ did 2,000 years ago, just as those people did uh, before the Noahic flood. They look forward to what Christ would do and what he would do for all believers. Salvation has never changed. People have always had to look to a substitutionary offering for their salvation. Again, Adam and Eve, the substitutionary offering was made by, um, was made by God. All throughout uh, the Old Testament, they're making substitutionary offerings, always looking to it as a type of Christ, what Christ would offer himself, and we look backwards to it. Helping us to appreciate that, when Jesus is talking to the scribes and Pharisees, he says in John chapter 8, 56, speaking of Abraham, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So Abraham, which came um, many years before, trying to think of the math on that one, that would have been um, 1,500 prior, 1,500 years prior. That was Abraham, maybe more. Abraham rejoiced to see God's day, and he saw it, or Christ's day, and he saw it and was glad. So what did he see? He saw the substitutionary death of Christ. He even makes reference to that in Genesis chapter 22. God shall offer himself a sacrifice. That's what he says. So he's looking forward to it. So he saw Christ's victory over Satan, over sin, and over death, and he saw the resurrection. And all Christians should see the same thing. We should see the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and our uh, being baptized into it and our resurrection and reigning in glory with the Lord. Now, if you compare the genealogies of chapter 4 in chapter 5, you'll find some interesting things. And the reason I read through all of it was so that you would begin to pick up on some of these patterns. You will notice that in Genesis chapter 4, death is not mentioned. Why is it not mentioned in chapter 4? Because these people are afraid of death. They all know that through the creation, they all know about God's eternal power and Godhead, and they know that it is appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And so it says in Hebrews 2.15 that all men are in bondage to fear of death. All men are in bondage to fear of death. All natural men. That is why these, um, oh, I, I, 
assisted living places. That's kind of a euphemism, what they call it now, because a lot of these folks need a great deal more than assistance to stay alive. I think of them as staked tomatoes because they are, their life is very fragile and they are generally taking medication to keep them alive. And why is that? It's because they're afraid to die. Now you contrast that with the, gen- the genealogy in chapter 5. It speaks of death there. And those people speak of their years of life as though they were just days because they are looking forward to being with the Lord. They count their years as days, knowing that it is through the grave, through death, that we enter into the joy of the Lord. In each one of these cases, it says, for example, Genesis 5.5, and all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. It speaks of the death of every one of these individuals, not in chapter 4, and it speaks of their years as though they were days. So again, such it is for the life of the Christian. We know that our days are numbered, and we're just passing through, and we will get to glory through the grave. So we do not um, fear death, but rather look forward to it, because that's the occasion when we put off the flesh, and sin dwells in the flesh. And at the end of Romans chapter 7, the Lord says through um, Paul, Who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In another place, Scripture says, I think it might be in First or Second Peter, that hating even the garment spotted by the flesh. Everything we touch, we ruin because we're sinners, and we look forward to the day, then we will put off the flesh and go to glory. Also in this line in Genesis chapter 5, they all bear sons and daughters. Obviously, those in chapter 4 did too, but it's not mentioned. And so it's the things that are mentioned, contrasting with what is not mentioned, that we can appreciate that God's people are fruitful. They are productive unto the Lord. And so we bear fruit unto the Lord as Christians. Um, We should also appreciate that those listed in Genesis chapter 5, none of those, excuse me, none of those in Genesis chapter 5 died when the flood came. If you look at all their years and you work it out in a chart, none of them was alive when the flood came. And there's a reason that God is teaching us that here is because God has not appointed his children for wrath. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, it says, God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. The flood was appointed for the sins of man. God's wrath was appointed for those that, that sinned, not for those in Genesis chapter 5. So he's teaching us a, a particular truth here. Um, John chapter 3 um, speaks of this, uh, about how the wrath of God abides on people. In verse 36 of John chapter 3, he says that, um, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. So those in chapter 4, God is teaching us that the wrath of God abides on them because they do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those of chapter 5 who call upon the name of the Lord, those that who identify themselves with the Lord, the wrath of God is not upon them. They shall inherit eternal life. You'll recall in Genesis chapter 4 that Cain moved away from the presence of God. So it is with non-believers. They move away from the light. They move away from the presence of the Lord versus the, um, the Christian moves towards uh, the light. In John chapter 3... We read about this. I'll pick it up in verse 17. Um, I'll pick it up in verse 18. He that believeth on him, meaning believe on Christ, is not condemned. 
But he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. You can see Cain in here. Light was set before him, the gospel was set before him, Christ was set before him, and he rejected it, and it says he moved away from the presence of God. Verse 20, For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they were wrought in God. So we see this division here where Christians move towards the light, and non-Christians move away from the light, lest they suffer judgment. So, of these genealogies, again, both begin with Adam. And interestingly enough, and not coincidentally, they both end with a man named Lamech. Those are two different men, but they both have the same name. And what does their name mean? Lamech means, why thus with thee? Why thus with thee? That's what Lamech means. For the man in Genesis chapter 4, the answer is sin. That it is why that is why it is us with you. It's because of sin. That is the short answer to all of their woes and to all of their problems. The answer is sin. The answer to the Lamech in Genesis chapter 5 would be God's grace. And that is the reason for their hope. That is the reason they have no fear of death. That is why they number their um, years as though they were days. And that is the why they bear fruit. Again, it is because of grace. They don't have any fear of death. In 1 Corinthians 15.55, the Lord says, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? So over the saint, their death has no victory. The grave does not hold us. We pass through the grave and go to glory. So both of these men, both of these genealogies terminate with a man named Lamech. And again, interestingly enough, of all those people mentioned in the genealogies, only two men speak, and it's Lamech in both cases. They both have something to say, the Lamech of Genesis 4 and the Lamech of Genesis chapter 5. One in chapter 4 argues that if sin should abound, then grace should much more abound. And that's an argument that God says um, is untenable to him, that you would never sin with the idea that grace would abound that much more. There are some people in some churches that preach grace only, and it becomes an excuse for lasciviousness in the flesh. And yet we are told many times in the scriptures that we should mortify the deeds of the flesh. But here we are in Genesis 4. We see this pattern set forth. Cain killed, killed a man, and vengeance would be sevenfold upon anybody that would kill Cain. He argues that I have killed a man, and that vengeance would be 70 times sevenfold for anybody that sought to take vengeance against him and to slay him. So he's arguing so much more so that I can do what I'm doing and nobody will harm me. You contrast with his message with what the Lamech of Genesis chapter 5 says, and the Lamech of Genesis chapter 5 speaks of rest and comfort, for that's what the name Noah means. The name Noah means rest, and so he's named his child Rest. By him, by Noah, his father says, this same shall comfort us concerning our work and toil of our hands because of the ground which the Lord hath cursed. Now, 
I'm not very old, but I'm getting tired of living, I'll be honest with you. I'm getting tired of fixing things that break, and God says that everything is going to break. Everything I fix um, has a problem with it. He says that I cannot make straight that which is made crooked. But I don't expect to live past, let's say, 85, 90 years. These guys live 900 years. How'd you like to be 900 years? And all the things you're dealing with in the earth, thorns and thistles are coming forth. You've painted your house like 150 times. You know what I mean? You're just, I've had enough. So these guys are legitimately looking for rest. Other people, they're making a name in the earth. They're trying to fix things. I don't know, they're saving the whales. You know, it's not going to happen. The Christian knows that. The Christian knows that the earth is going to be burned up and all the works therein shall be burned up. God's going to dissolve it and he's going to bring in a new heaven and a new earth. So I can certainly appreciate from a Christian perspective why you would get tired of living and look forward to your eternal rest in Christ. And the Lord says that, Come unto me, all ye that are weary and um, heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And it's a rest for your soul. So you're done striving with this earth. You're done striving against sin. You're tired of it. You're ready to move on. I have a a friend who passed in the past year. um, I think she was pushing 90. She was done living. She uh, had a medical problem, and she said, I'm not going to go see a doctor, and she died about a week later. She was done, and I can appreciate that. And uh, sometimes I share that with my children, and they think, oh, you're just depressed. And I'm like, well, I'm I'm done. I'm tired. Um, So, again, these people are looking for rest. Um, Now, interestingly enough, they're speaking of toiling in the earth, and so he names his son Noah, which means rest. It is through the toils of Noah for a hundred years he's going to build an ark in which if people go they will um, pass through the wrath of God but suffer no effects from it so again Noah as a type of Christ here we can appreciate that we will rest in Christ who will suffer the wrath of God on our behalf and no harm shall come to us so again contrasting we have Lamech Lamech is preaching peace and safety, again thinking that he can do whatever he wants and not suffer the judgment of God. Um, He moves further and further away from God in the context of um, not abiding and doing the things that were set before him and following some basic principles of marriage. That's the first thing we see here. We note that he has taken two wives to himself. He's a polygamist. Where are we in our society? Marriage is completely upside down and men are doing what is right in their own eyes. So you've got a polygamist here in the first Lamech, and he is a murderer having killed a man that is made in the likeness of God, saying that none shall avenge me. Um, Now, um, so he's speaking that he can live as he was, and the Lamech of chapter 5 is pointing to God's judgment to come. Um, Now, we can appreciate, another way we can appreciate the differences between these two genealogies is the fifth man down is given a name, and the names of the fifth man down in both cases mean something very different thing. In, Gen- in Genesis chapter 5, the name of the fifth man is Mahalalel, and that means praise of God. So again, the the uh, genealogy in chapter 5 is looking to God, identifying themselves with God, and praising God. In Genesis chapter 4, the fifth person down, his name is Mahujael. And that means blot out, blot out 
that Jah or Jehovah is God. Blot out that Jehovah is God. And this is what people do when they suppress the conviction of their conscience um, that they are doing that which is wrong. They have to blot out God and tell themselves that they're not going to suffer the wrath of God, which, of course, is a lie. So chapter 5 is praise of God. Chapter 4, blot out that Jah is God. Um, and where does it lead? It leads to the summary of man in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, where we read, And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that's where you end up as society, individually, when you blot out that Jehovah is God. And I think we're about there in our own society. Now, so the Lamech of Genesis chapter 4, he thinks he can murder with impunity, taking the life of one who's in the image of God. And rather than a marriage consisting of one man and one woman, where the woman is one flesh with the man, where the woman is equal with the man, where the woman is looked to as a suitable helpmeet for the man, um, yet subordinate to his authority, rather than that, he takes two women to wife, and their names are Ada and Zillah. Ada means ornament, and Zillah means shadiness or shadow, indicating that the women here are viewed differently than they should be in a Christian context. They are viewed here in a fleshly context because clearly he has chosen the one woman that she might be a, quote, trophy wife, and he's chosen her because she's attractive and in a fleshy manner that would be a pleasure unto men. Uh, while Zillah, she's a shadow, and that's suggestive that she has no substance or character or intellect of her own that would be appreciated by men. So we see that the relationship between men and women is deteriorating where the flesh is reigning supreme. Of their children that they bear, they have names too, which help us appreciate spiritual truths. Um, Ada gives birth to two sons. One is Jabal, the other is Jubal. Jabal means a stream. Jubal means he will be carried. Zillah gives birth to a son called Tubal-Cain, and that means thou wilt be brought to Cain. Put the names of them all together. You have a stream, he will be carried, thou will be brought to Cain. What is it teaching us? That it suggested that as a people who having blotted out that Jehovah is God, having rejected the gospel as did Cain, all are flowing, carried down a stream of their iniquities to the same place that Cain was, and they shall bring to them the same condemnation and judgment as will be suffered by Cain. Jude speaks of this when he says, speaking of people like this, he says, Woe unto them, for they have gone the way of Cain. So in the names of these three people, uh, these three sons, when you put them all together, it's indicative of that. All of those people are in the broad way, going through the white, wide gate, carried there by their iniquities and their rebellion to God to eternal destruction. They're going the way of Cain. And so it is for all people that live a carnal life and reject the gospel. Now, that both of these genealogies end with a man of the same name is suggestive that the world and the church will look a lot alike in the latter days. However, they will have a different message. The world will preach 
excuse me, yeah, yeah, the world will preach, the false church will preach that God loves everybody and a loving God won't condemn a people that are in his image. After all, they would argue, he made them the way that they are, so why doth he find fault in them? That's the argument that comes from Romans chapter 9, verse 20. God made them that way. He loves them. You can see those signs on the churches. There's a church at the top of the hill there on, Hillsburg, on um, Hillsdale that says something uh, like that, or it did for a, a time. That's going to be their message. Well, the true church, the spiritual church, will preach Christ Jesus as the exclusive means and agency by which people might know rest and comfort, that they might know salvation through the work of Christ, through the toils of Christ. And that when God judges all the earth, as he says he will, that again, if you are in Christ, you are forever safe in his everlasting arms in the things that he has done on our behalf. So the true church looks to Christ and the uh, false church uh, looks to self and perverts the gospel, suggesting that God will not be a righteous judge, which he in fact is. So we're going to close there. And next week we will speak about the birth of Christ. Amen.